Hello, this is Heidi Ruby Miller, editor of Like Sunshine After Rain, the charity anthology which benefits the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And you're listening to Genretainment. everyone this is julie and i reckon this is marks <laughs> on today's episode we're... <laughs> you never can do that well <laughs> ah, i think that was spot on spot on on today's episode we're chatting with two very special guests authors and professors heidi ruby miller and jason jack miller they also happen to be my mentors from the mfa program at seton hill university now we had a great time chatting with them about how they became authors the value in an MFA, the difference between a popular fiction MFA program compared to the more common creative writing graduate programs. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about Heidi's Ambassadora books, Jason's Hellbender book, and his possible Snot Otter book. <laughs> <laughs> you had to listen to find out. Chatted a little bit about Appalachian culture, on writing about other cultures, writing in someone else's fictional setting, the charity anthology and online event coming up this Uh, July 24th and 25th, 2021, plus tips on co-writing and staying productive. Yes, an edutainment-packed episode. That is a lot. (laughs) That was a lot of fun to record. And please do consider attending the Like Sunshine After Rain online event or buy a copy of the anthology. We have links in the show notes. Proud to have a short story in it and help support such an important cause. Yes, and speaking of the cause, the proceeds do benefit the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which is a great cause to support. Now, I do also want to mention that in this interview and the previous interview with Crystal Frazier, I do have to apologize. I was very, very sick. We did some back-to-back <laughs> recording episodes, and I was completely out of it for poor Crystal and overcompensated with far too much uh, caffeine and medication <laughs> for this one. So if I sound a little off on the lo- this and the previous episodes, I do apologize. I'm back to normal. Well, normal for me. So um, (laughs) with apologies to Heidi and Jason for this, let's get started on our interview. Hi, welcome to the show, Heidi and Jason. Hi, nice to, I guess, see you, sort of. (laughs) Hear you. Hear Hear us, us, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Virtual meet cute. Yes. (laughs) I finally learned what meet cute meant, so I finally learned that word. I'm so happy to know what you what you said. Yes. So before we get into you know your various projects, why don't you give us your origin story for becoming authors? <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say origin story of becoming a couple because <laughs> that too we can't use on your show. Well, that's our that's our late night show. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> which just is funny, but we'll save that for another time. But as for us becoming authors, we actually started out as travel writers and we collaborated on a camping guide uh, for Avalon Travel Publishing, which is part of Perseus Group. And that was a wonderful experience because we already enjoyed the outdoors. We already did so much hiking. Jason had been a whitewater raft guide for seven years so it just kind of came naturally, and that's how we also got our first agent. Um, it was at Penn Writers Conference, and we were able to get into Authors Guild and all of these other organizations that were very cool and extremely helpful. Then in the middle of that is when we actually uh, decided to go to Seton Hill for fiction writing to get our master's. We had uh, both been teaching high school, in fact. And before that, we actually started writing fiction in Florida. Um, and, and, and probably 1998, we had gotten married and we were either going to do grad school for Yucatecan Maya archaeology, or we were going to go work for the mouse at Walt Disney World. And that's what we ended up doing. And uh, I got a little bit homesick. and I started to kind of want to write down some of the things that I was missing. And Heidi had a romance novel she was working on. So when we eventually did come home, we started writing 
content for these up and coming websites, which was kind of cool because uh, this was the early days of the internet, which I guess, you know, like 2000, 2001 and these websites, it was, it was that first boom. Um, so they were, they would pay us in camping gear, backpacking gear, roof racks. We had thousands and thousands of dollars worth of camping equipment. So when the camping guide actually came, that was a perfect fit. Um, and that is what eventually kind of led us towards Seton Hill, thinking that could be a way to further our fiction, which is what we really love to do. Family Snafu was our agent at the time who was absolutely wonderful. She only did nonfiction, and we couldn't find another agent who would only take our fiction. So we were kind of like a bit at a bit of an impasse. Especially when Heidi got a phone call from the agent. <gasps> Yeah, and she said, I have never had, it was a December, I will never forget it. And she said, I have never had to tell a client this ever. And she had told us that three of the contracts that we had in line. Big contracts. Big ones had been canceled. And oh. part, one of them, it was because an editor had left the publishing company. And whenever she left, and when a new editor comes in, oftentimes they bring in their own people. And that's exactly what happened. Mm. Uh, the other two, it was because the internet did start to get really big and people realized that they could get a lot of this information for free. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of like a blow. Like we had already started some of these projects and um, there were some kill fees which didn't really amount to as much as what we could have made if we would have been able to continue with that. But then we were like, well, maybe that's a sign to get on with this fiction stuff. And then after we graduated Seton Hill, um, we ended up going with Raw Dog Screaming Press. Actually, Jason did at the time to get his fiction published, but they only did dark fiction. And since I did science fiction, I remember, I always tell this story, how Dog Store Books, which is Raw Dog Screaming Press's fantasy and science fiction imprint, was born in our kitchen at midnight over a Red Devil's Food cupcake. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was talking about how to one of the publishers, owners, Jennifer Barnes, that I uh, had these science fiction novels. And uh, she said, well, did you ever think of maybe us doing an imprint? And I was like, I will have a proposal to you by next week. And I did. I had a 30-page proposal immediately ready to go uh, for Dogstar Books and I was managing editor there for four years, and I still edit for them. I still acquire for them, and I still take on um, some of the clients that I took on, authors that I took on originally. When they do follow-up novels or sequels, I still edit them and still take care of all of that. So that all came about, and we um, were getting ready to figure out what the next stage was. Before all that, we actually tried our hand at self-publishing. We had got out of Seton Hill, and we pursued traditional publishing, you know, just like we kind of had been planning on doing. And things weren't really happening. I had an interesting experience with an agent that kind of pushed me towards the self-publishing. And that became its own sort of journey, its own kind of, you know, education. It was almost like more effort and more strenuous than the actual master's degree. So. Um, that whole process was probably, you know, a couple years until we actually did that. The irony is that when we met John and Jennifer from RDSP, uh, I wasn't planning on actually pitching to them. And we hit it off. We got along so well that um, it, it felt really natural. But that was kind of part of the story at the time was how I was a hybrid author that, that moved from self-published to traditionally published. So between all these little things, there's been a wide variety of projects we've been involved with, both independently and together. But because we're a couple, it's always together, more or less. So as a matter of fact, when we met John and Jen, it was at Frostburg University's Writers Conference. It was because Many Genres, One Craft, the textbook that I had edited with Mike Arnson that was based on the Seton Hill program, had come out and we were going down to promote that. And uh, Mike Arnson had already been published with Raw Dog Screen Press. And that's how we ended up meeting John and Jen. And it was kind of just like everything fit together really well. 
Jason talked about our journey. We went from big five publishing, then down to self-publishing, then to small press. And now we're still a bit of a hybrid of everything. Um, and I don't know where our new projects are going to fit in yet, the ones that we're actually collaborating on now. But at this point, I feel like we have experience in all of these areas. So we're just, we feel good about it one way or That's another. That's right. That's good to yeah. Well, that's the important part. At least you feel like you're, you know, heading in the direction you want to be going in, you know? <laughs> yeah, I got my MFA from Seton Hill. You're, you two are my, if people don't already know, you two are my mentors, my creative parents. <laughs> <laughs> you were the only mentee we've ever shared. So oh. that says something. It's very special. How sweet. Even if we, have, if we have to break the mold. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, anybody who's listening, if they're thinking about like, well, should I ever try MFA? I don't know. You know, is there any, what would you answer to that question? Why would they want to go for an MFA? And, you know, should it be like a school like Seton Hill or some other school? Well, of course it should be Seton Hill. (laughs) I signed signed away everything, including if I would ever have a firstborn, which that's not going to happen at this point. Um, I will be honest. I always tell people this. The two biggest boons to my career were Penn Writers, which is the Pennsylvania writing organization, although it's open to everyone around the world, and Seton Hill. I have received more to help my career from those two organizations than from anywhere else. I never regret having gotten my graduate degree. It is expensive, and I do understand that, uh, but it changed my life. It truly did. Like I'm not even being trite whenever I say that it truly did because I was at a time of transition. Anyway, Jason wasn't actually going to do the program. He's a, he was a semester behind me, but he came down and did everything with me during residency mm-hmm. and hooked. So yeah, let me yeah, just say, think... Oh, sorry. I was going to say just as okay. somebody who, uh, as the spouse of someone working, <laughs> getting their MFA, <laughs> Um, you kind of feel like you've gone through it with them because uh, in a way you have. Um, but I think I wouldn't, I mean, I was on board a hundred percent. I'm, I'm glad that we went through with that and he did it. And, um, I grew Seton Hill. The interesting thing is, uh, my maiden name was Seton. <laughs> oh, really? oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah, so I told him, I said, you should really see if we can't angle that for a, like a reduction in the, the tuition or something, you know? Um, and then the, the, I'd only taken your maiden name. I, I know. And I tried to get you to, um, and then the, the hazard yet forward motto that they have is I had already known that to be our family motto. <laughs> Wow. And so when he said, there's the Seton Hill, and I'm like, well, obviously you need to go there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had done just a little bit of looking up and, you know, the family crest from way back when, you know, I mean, obviously a crest doesn't get passed down, mm-hmm. but a family crest from way back when was the Griffin Dragon with like a, oh a leather strap with the belt buckle and it says hazard yet forward. And so then we found out that that's their motto and then their mascot's the griffin and i was like you know it was meant to be we you know we've done our web series reality on demand and we even put hazard yet forward in like as an inside joke as a line and then so it's like well obviously it's meant to be i mean there's no way to argue against it at this point you know (laughs) that is neat that is neat i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you yeah i interrupted jason i apologize i'm so sorry Oh, that's right. No, I I think I was going to say just that's, you know, for probably people that know what they want to do, because on the other hand, that's a very, very expensive way to find out you don't want to be a writer. So it's definitely a a gatekeeping sort of situation there. Yeah. And one reason I mentioned like why Seton Hill, people who maybe haven't done the research or maybe not even know the difference, there are only a handful of programs that do popular fiction. Right? A lot of people, I'm sure, don't know that. Yeah. No. So can you, can you tell people like what's the difference between, you know, a popular fiction program versus the majority of programs out there? Yes. Popular fiction programs, you get to write the fun stuff. like <laughs> yeah. The things people read. Exactly. And it was interesting when we went to um, AWP, which is the Association for Writing Programs, 
and I think there's something else in there too, writers and writings programs, something like that. In Seattle one year, there was a group of us from Seton Hill. Uh, it was Orange and Dr. Peeler, Jason, and myself. We had all of our beautiful brochures out that said, want to write fantasy, want to write science fiction, want to write young adult and so forth. And we had them on the table. And at the time, we were actually the only graduate program in the country that was writing popular fiction because this was quite some time ago. I remember when we would have people coming over, they would inadvertently touch the brochure of whatever genre they were most interested in. So then we would, of course, say, oh, do you like fantasy? And they'd be like, oh, I do. How did you know? <laughs> but it was great because we had so many people at our table. And then we started getting some of the other schools coming over that were, I don't know if they were jealous or what, but Probably. they would ask us things like, well, where's your journal? And we would say things like, well, we do not have a journal. And they were like, aha. And it was like, well, because our writers prefer to get paid for their work. <laughs> So we had this beautiful brag sheet that I had put together with Ellen Wadich, who is at uh, Seton Hill's Adult Studies Program. She might even be with Graduate Studies now. And we had put together a giant list of all of the best-selling authors, all of the authors that had works made into other media, movies, TV, and so forth, and all of the award winners. And it was single-spaced, two pages, front and back. It, it was just absolutely incredible. And I remember that one of the other schools had come over and picked up that paper and was looking at it and then just literally tossed it back on the table and discussed and left. And I, well, that's because look at the people that are associated with Seton Hill. And that list has only probably quadrupled in size since then. It, it is just absolutely incredible. The low residence, the, um, what is that called, Jason? Low residency. Low residency. Is it called low residency? Yeah. Okay. The low residency part, I have pandemic brain, by the way. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I've been finding myself not able to find the words that I normally can just spit out, uh, what have you. So that's sometimes I seem confused. Don't that worry. I had to consume chocolate just for a boom, boost before we did the <laughs> interview. So. <laughs> we'll see. That's good. That's good. But yeah, the low residency part of the program where you only come for a week in January and in June works out for most people's schedules because they can still work full time. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, and there's also a little bit of, um, with some of the schools, like a little bit of snobbery about popular fiction. Um, I know oh, when, where we, Mark's, yeah, where Marks <laughs> and I went for our undergrad, there was a creative writing class, but you couldn't write anything, no horror, no science fiction, no fantasy, nothing that takes place in the past, nothing that takes place in the future, and nothing that hasn't happened to you personally. But that was creative oh, wow. writing. Wow. And and even there at that where their creative writing was basically they did poetry and like creative nonfiction about memoir kind of stuff. It was basically all they wanted. And even then, like I I was in the journalism. I was working on my journalism degree at the time and they just you know they turned their nose up like well we don't write so that other people will read it we have a higher <laughs> calling you know and they're they're just like they literally would just have this disgust you know and of course they're always in the, like the the black turtlenecks and the berets and you know walking around <laughs> campus and groups and and it, it's just you know they were like well you know we write in journalism we crank stuff out but we're getting out information also a cornerstone of democracy but i'm not going to throw that in your face and <laughs> Uh, and it's, you know, we write stuff so people can read it. And even my, my mentor and an advisor who was a journalist, uh, he also had written fiction books that were mystery novels. And again, it's popular fiction. And they're just like, oh, journalism and popular fiction. It's like, yeah, how horrible people read a stuff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> But the, there's just this really sense of we write because we have a calling. And, and I, I actually had one tell me, even if I write a novel and I no one ever reads it and I stick it in a drawer, if, it, if, it's, if it's my great novel, it's worth more than anything you've written so people will read it, you know. Wow. So, so you, but wow. you understand. You've encountered that, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Yep. Many times over. You just kind of like slightly smile and nod your head and think, well, this person must need to hear that from themselves. 
it's like, we don't because we actually make a living doing what we want to do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, let's start with you, Heidi. You debuted with your uh, Ambassadoria series. Ambassadora? Ambassadora. Yeah. Boy, I pronounce it mm-hmm. you know, He does better writing make- things down than saying <laughs> it. Pronouncing words? Ah. <laughs> My defense, George R. R. Martin's horrible pronouncing things. So he is. God bless his heart. <laughs> anyway, no. Uh, why don't you uh, tell our audience more about that series, that sci-fi series? Sure. Ambassador, the first one marked by light, was actually my thesis novel at Seton Hill. And I worked on that with mentors, Paul Montalini, who is a horror guy now, but back in the 60s and 70s, he did quite a bit of science fiction. And then Tobias Bakel, who still does um, quite a bit of science fiction. And... I actually worked on it for about six years on and off, even after I graduated, because I was on to moving on to other things and I wasn't quite where I needed to be with it. And then it just kind of like all started coming into place. Then I wrote, instead of writing the very next one in line, I was like, oh, I need a prequel. (laughs) (laughs) So I wrote a little world of series that is kind of runs concurrent with the ambassador series. And I wrote two of those and the third book, which I guess is technically the second book in the main arc um, is due out sometime within the next couple of years. All I have to do is finish it. <laughs> and then that's, that's all. That's all. Um, yeah, that's all. That's all. Yes. I got sidetracked by quite a few other things along the way. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll work and all. But um, how did you come up with the story concept for Ambassadora? Well, I have so many influences. One time somebody had asked me to uh, do an interview about that. And I had everything down there from InStyle Magazine to Farscape <gasps> to Andromeda. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah, there's just so much that I, I've always loved science fiction. And I wanted to write something that was space opera. And this world just started coming to me. And I have a giant novelpedia about everything that I thought was like really cool and really neat. And actually today I was reading someone else's work and I came up with an idea that was a derivative of something that they'd had in there that I told Jason, I'm like, I have never seen this before. Have you ever seen this before? And he said, no, I haven't. So I'm like, okay, goes right into the idea book. And the characters, I, I really, the whole concept is if, no, if everyone told you that love wasn't real, would you still be willing to die for it? Mm-hmm. And not once, that's the only time that the word love appears in the book. And it's based on the fact that when we had to leave for the earth in world ships millennia ago, there were two classes. It was basically the uppers and the lowers. And what happened with the uppers, they started dying off. And there were, they were worried about the gene pool. And the lowers didn't have that issue. So the uppers started creating basically breeding circles where you would have multiple partners in order to keep those genes going. Well, by the time they terraformed the planets in the interbrazil, some of them stuck to that and really liked that way of life. But quite a few believed that, no, that it was more about monogamy and about what they called an emotional fallacy, which is actually love. Um, and that's how that idea was kind of born from there. And it was somewhat romantic, I guess, but it was also somewhat violent because of what I think I was going through at the time. And you can see subsequently the books after that aren't quite as violent. I think it sounds amazing. I really like that idea. <laughs> and, and as a side note, Marks and I are huge avid fans of Farscape. <gasps> well, back see, in the day, we—I the, remember we watched the pilot when it came out, and it was so funny because, like, we just watched the pilot and it got done. I'm like, you know, I'm not entirely sure what the heck we just watched, but I <laughs> think I really like it. Like, it—it it was just so original. It was almost disorienting the first time you see the pilot, you know. But okay. which is great because the lead character, that's what he's going through. Right. Yeah. And so yes, like, you're right. just, you're living it with him. And, but we were just hooked. And, and I mean, we just couldn't wait for the next episode after that over and over. And, and I mean, I, we went into mourning when it was canceled. 
(laughs) And it was that, it was the great purge of everything good on sci-fi, which was like the end of sci-fi channel, basically Mm. when they did that, because it was, you know, Farscape, Invisible Man and a bunch of others. And ever since then, we haven't actually bothered. They shifted Stargate and then they shifted. Stargate. Yeah. They managed to do that for a while until universe was awful. And then, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that the the great purge that killed Farscape basically killed our love of that channel for the most part. <laughs> so yeah, I may have actually named a character Ben because of Ben Browder. Ben Browder, so. yes. <laughs> so I uh, was happy when he showed up on Stargate too. I got the book in print, so you can yeah. you can read it. So. Yeah. yeah. That's next in line. I'm I'm able to read again now, so yay! Now let's bounce over Jason. Yes, your book. Your book, uh, your early books. uh, I can't remember if this is first or second book, but Hellbender. Hellbender, I like saying it like that, Hellbender. (laughs) Is that how you think of it in your head? Is that how it sounds in your head, Jason? Yeah, it's it's a curvy word for sure. (laughs) Well, it, it, it won the Arthur J. Rooney Award for Fiction. Lachlan Scholarship. Mm-hmm. And the finalist for the yeah. Appalachian Writers Association Book of the Year Award. Is yeah. that correct? I hope because I'm reading it. it. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, well, thank you very much. You know, I mean, the Hellbender is a real creature. Uh, I've never seen one, but it's also known as the Snot Otter. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. Yeah. You know, maybe not for a book. Um, book title is Snot Otter. I don't know. I think I've yeah. gone with Snot Otter. I would have gone Snot Bender. <laughs> I'd have gone with Snot Otter. I have one left in the series. Maybe that's what I'll call it. Snot Otter. <laughs> you totally should. Yeah. I'm not sure how people would react to that. but uh... <laughs> Well, I think it would go over great. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the guts to take that risk. But, uh... <laughs> now, you originally, did you write that at Seton Hill? I did write that at Seton Hill. That was my thesis. And it's actually the second book I'd written. It was a learning process. That was the first, you know, we always say about the Seton Hill book, it's probably the most heavily scrutinized thing you're ever going to write. Yeah. I, I learned a lot. You know, I didn't learn about genre as much as I should have because I, I never really wrote to a specific genre. But essentially, it's Hatfields and McCoys with witches. And yes. um, I kind of put everything I loved into it at the time, you know, just like Abed Nadir from Community. We like liking things. And of course, I, I like to put those things into the book. But uh, we'd actually, a uh, principal sent us down to a retreat, a workshop in Spruce Knob, West Virginia, back in 2003. And uh, one of the weekends was about mountain folklore. And I couldn't believe there was this entire subsection I'd never, ever, ever heard of. And it blew my mind. I kind of got totally immersed in that, which was good because I ended up getting really three books out of that one experience. But uh, it was truly, you know, I got a lot of mileage out of it. It's been good to me. So <laughs> so, so how, yeah. how would you explain the concept of the book? Yeah. The concept of the book, it is Hatfields and McCoys with witches. It's a family feud. The magic that is involved is, is kind of subtle, you know, the witchcraft. You know, there's some people down there that believe that you could, you know, curse somebody if you get hold of their hair or in times of drought, you could get milk from an axe handle. So for writing, the imagery was just really kind of crazy. And I think that one of the things I realized was, uh, you know, I, I read a lot, but I do read a lot of more mainstream type of things. And trying to figure out how to do the magic was difficult until I started to see historical pictures of these trees that were just 15 feet across at the base or uh, one of the first people in the area talked about these laurel, these mountain laurel thickets that you could get lost in for days and days and days. So just this imagery all lent itself to that. And uh, that was a fun book to write. So I I had a really, really great experience with that. And that was the one ultimately that was published first was Hellbender. So I think it's great. Because it's it's such an underutilized, so many people do not understand just the rich history and culture of the Appalachian region. Um, it, it's it's just, you know, and, and my family, on one side of my family is actually from just the bare outskirts of Appalachia. And mm. um, the music and the culture and the storytelling, I mean, it's just, 
it's generation after generation of just such rich storytelling and, and music. And even the music's very storytelling, you know? So, you know, that, that well, must have... that you mentioned that because, uh, you know, it, it, it is a patchwork. And that was something that I experienced was, uh, you know, I was born and raised in southwestern Pennsylvania. And I come from coal miners and farmers. Me too. But even that sometimes wasn't enough to open some doors. And I, I kind of felt like um, an outsider. It was weird to be made to feel like an outsider about my own culture. Right. But it, it was true for me is that I didn't have fiddles and, you know, moonshine stills in my closet. My great-grandparents came from Croatia and they had accordions and sliv of it. So, you know, it was eye-opening for me. And that's one of the things that I kind of learned was that if I was an outsider to that culture, oh, yeah. I, I didn't appropriate it. I have just observed it with my own subjectivity. So that ended up becoming the, the approach that I started to take with the rest of those. That's so interesting. So, I've actually been to Croatia. Hrabuka Hrvatska. Oh, my God. And so, oh, those yeah, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I heard a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, I, I was there like in the late 90s. So it was oh, wow. it was. It was more, you know, fear of landmines and gunfire, but there, there was still a little bit of the other there as well. <laughs> I had a cousin that was in Croatia in 2001, and he was a PSYOP with the army, and he was the, they, they passed out the comic books in, you know, Serbian and then in the Croatian and whatnot. So that's kind of, he had similar stories that it wasn't a fun time to be, uh, yeah. In the Balkans, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I stayed in the home of a man who was actually the main gun runner for the village. So <laughs> figured I was wow. okay. I was safe. <laughs> That's one heck of a cultural exchange there. <laughs> that, it was very interesting. But um, I hear what you're saying about the, the culture. You know, I grew up, I was a coal miner's daughter when I was younger before they closed up the mine. And um, our family reunions were and uh, I had a tobacco farm down in Kentucky. So, oh, wow. So, you know, my, my whole family were basically a part of the culture, part of America that's getting, that's dying, really. Yeah. But people yeah. don't realize, you know, the Appalachian culture is so, is such a, a mixture of European, Native American, and African American. And if it weren't for those three influences, you know, all equal, you just wouldn't have that. It's, it's about as American as you can get. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah, I, it's actually, I think, the music aspect. Also, I had an eye-opening experience talking about the traditional music. Oh, yeah. And this was around the time that Mumford & Sons came out. And I just thought how when it was authentic, um, it wasn't really accepted. But when it was repackaged, in this case, the Mumford and Sons by foreigners then reintroduced to us, mm-hmm. you know, basically what the Beatles did. They, they repackaged blues and, you know, um, um, just sold it back to us. So it was kind of, you know, one of those things that, yeah, understanding that parts of America, you know, just the incongruity that was eye-opening. I'm not sure that, you know, any of us can do that deep a dive. Um, to understand our fellow Americans, but for me that was a deep dive, and still there's a long way to go. So yeah, it's it's just an absolutely beautiful, fascinating area of the country and culture. Yeah. I mean, you just don't get more American than that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Heidi, you wrote Man of War, which is a sequel to Philip Jose's Farmer's novel Two Hawks from Earth. Um, you know, what's it like writing? stories in someone else's fictional setting playing in someone else's sandbox yeah and how well did you know farmers work before for the opportunity yeah because that's really interesting well to answer your first question it is nerve-wracking <laughs> i never know what the fans are going to say luckily i had done a short story that had been published in one of farmers um, anthologies that was a follow-up to two hawks from earth and it was so well received. That's how they asked me, Meteor House, uh, who publishes uh, all of Farmer stuff, they asked me if I'd be willing to do a novella. And I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, that involved three editors and uh, probably three different chapter outlines in order to get what we needed to do. 
and it, it was a great experience though because I am still really close to the Meteor House people. As a matter of fact, when we went to London for Jason's birthday, oh my gosh, now was that 2019? Who knows? It was somewhere in the past. <laughs> it was pre-pandemic. That's all we know. Exactly. Yes. One of my editors is from the area and he showed us around London the entire freaking day and took oh. us to all of his favorite spots. And it was just like so wonderful. Wow. Um, so yeah, it was a great feeling. It was quite a bit of work and I have been asked actually to do more, which is wonderful. As a matter of fact, one of the things about the ending, they wanted to make sure that I had the ending set up so that there could be more books later on because I got what was extremely cool is I was able to create a character that will forever be a part of the farmer verse. And that was Dakota Cummings. Um, and she was the type of character that I wanted to create. It was Two Hawks love interest, but it was on a much more equal plane, let's say, for a female character. Because, of course, some of the times whenever you had female characters that were written in Days Gone By, mm -hmm. they had their particular roles and so forth, but Dakota didn't. And Two Hawks was just, he was all about it. And it worked out extremely well. And it was also my way of, uh, for the first time, getting to write something that took place underwater. I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> so that's why the eponymous man of war, that's what they called the station that was underwater because it looked like the jellyfish, the man of war. So then I got into this jellyfish thing that I was just like really <laughs> excited about. <laughs> that is so cool. And that's just such a specific <laughs> desire. <laughs> so Aquaman would be great, right? Right in Aquaman? <laughs> Yeah, it was an experience I would absolutely do again. Um, and I could have joined the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers because of it. And uh, that has been uh, a lot of fun because there's always different opportunities that are coming up there. And so far, I've been so busy with this charity anthology that I have not had opportunity this year to take advantage of pitching any of those ideas. But soon, soon. Cool. Did I hear uh, Jason sound like you were saying something? Oh no! Just making a an aside earlier, so nothing worth going back. Ironically, you said about me not getting a jellyfish tattoo, which I will tell you, <gasps> the very first story I ever had published was called Mara's Jellyfish, and was about this woman who was afraid to get a tattoo, so she would coerce all of these men into getting tattoos, and then she would collect the tattoos by oh, killing them. Collect them. I know. Like, you can tell that I was surrounded by horror writers at the time. I, I blame <laughs> what happened with the first Ambassadora book, why it was so dark. <laughs> so, Jason, do you get nervous if she tries to talk you into getting a tattoo? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. I think when Miami Ink was on, we went on that path for like two weeks, and then uh, that was it for me, so... <laughs> I'm too cheap. Like it used to be, I was too worried about it being permanent. You know, like I, I'm just, I wasn't really great at commitment. I gotten better, you know, being married for as long, you know, but, um, <laughs> which is a good sign. Um, but like, I just committing to something permanent when I was younger and now I could do it, but now I'm just cheap. And I'm like, I'm not spending a couple hundred bucks on something like that. <laughs> you know how many dresses I could buy? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I guess I missed the boat. <laughs> and, and for those people who may not be familiar with Two Hawks from Earth, right. that specific work of his, uh, what, what's that about? It is great. I'm not going to give you the twist ending to Two oh, Hawks. Don't. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was very cool because Farmer was very an anthropological writer, which of course I have one of my undergrad degrees is in anthropology. So I was drawn to so many of uh, the things that he's written. And in Two Hawks from Earth, we have an Iroquois Icelandic American pilot who is going to do bombing runs over Romania. And right in the middle of it flies through basically a hole in space that takes him to an alternate Earth. And then he has all these adventures while he's there, some of them not the greatest. I will say, I did not see the most horrific torture scene ever that came up in that book. I do not put any of that in my book <laughs> at all. But yes, 
And I was wondering. It was like, wow. Yes, it was really rough. And essentially the premise is that um, because Two Hawks is Native American, he actually flies into an earth where the uh, North and South America did not exist. But you have a lot of Native peoples that were in Europe and so forth at the time. So it's like really interesting the way that all of these different, and he doesn't know exactly where he fits in with all of this as well. And all in the German pilot that was trying to shoot him down actually also flies in. Um, and because uh, they are basically the only people from their earth that's there, they kind of end up sort of making peace with one another and realizing that it wasn't their war that they, they were fighting to begin with. Um, that type of thing. And it, of course, ends with him wanting to try to find a portal to go home. But I'm not going to tell you the twist. Um, but then I pick it up later. So I, I've done something more with it past that point. And that's where we meet Dakota. Interesting. Yeah, that's kind of interesting how they would, um, you know, because they went from enemies. Now they have this shared experience, you know, and it's similar to how after the American Civil War in the years afterwards, they found that uh, veterans in both the Confederacy and the Union often ended up able to be friends with each other more than anyone else because they understood what they'd gone through. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Farmer's Work, the one I'm most familiar with is mm-hmm. Riverworld. Riverworld. I just can't quite get an oh, adaptation. <laughs> It cannot get a good TV or film adaptation to save its life. Yeah, yeah. No. The the original movie. What's that? Oh, no, I was just going to talk about another former book, but go ahead. Mm -hmm. The original adaptation, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the original original one on Sci-Fi Channel I thought was decent. It was was actually pretty Um, good. It was supposed to be a backdoor pilot for a series, and then they did another one, which was horrible. So I don't know yeah, how they did the, worse. the one they thought was the improvement was actually not as good as the original yeah, so they did. Can't quite quite nail it. That's a tough tough book series. To nail. It would be. It's hard to do visually. <clears throat> but are we, are we gonna? Which suggest? one were you gonna say? I was actually going to talk about Tongues of the Moon, which is a very very obscure one that I'm not sure many other people have read, but it deals um, it deals with having a moon station. And of course, Russia and the U.S. are still at war like <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke also did that with 2010. Mm-hmm. And they're, they were able to launch the weapon from the moon that could actually destroy things that were on Earth and so forth. And there was like this whole, it, it was fascinating because again, Farmer had um, one of the main characters was Navajo. And it was a female, in fact. Um, And he just always, for that time period, was able to put in so many things that um, I know. I don't know if some people would feel that now it would be appropriating culture. I'm not sure that he felt that way, though. I think he felt that he was fascinated and learned about all these other cultures and really wanted to um, let them be their own characters. Uh So I, I. that's just another one that I was pretty interested in. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's, I personally feel like people need to not be quite so judgmental about things that have come before. You know, judging them by how you feel about things in the present is <laughs> not necessarily the best way, you know, um, to, to yeah. accuse people yeah. of, you know, it's like, well, it was a different time for starters. And then also, with the cultural appropriation, sometimes you just can't win for losing. If you, if you're a white writer and you wrote a character who's not white, then you're appropriating. But if you wrote all white characters, then you're racist. So it's kind of hard. Yeah. To... So exactly, I'm not sure yeah, what people are supposed to do now. Exactly. Yeah, yeah tight. I'm not either. Yeah, I get really nervous about that too because I actually I have a friend who is Navajo, and I tend to use her her or like a member of her family in a lot of different uh, situations. And I, I don't know how that will come across. I, I already had one agent that was like a little bit nervous about it. And I was like, well, I knew about cultural appropriation clear back whenever I was in grads or an undergrad. Right. So like, I think that I'm being very careful, but then again, it might not come off that way. And I have students ask me those kind of questions all the time. 
and I don't know what to tell them. I'm like, I don't know. You have to kind of just see how things are going to shake out. And I, I'm sure that at some point, some either an agent or an editor is going to guide you as to what is going to be acceptable right now. But that doesn't mean that after it's already out there, that there might not be something, you know, that comes later. So, yeah, that's always something I personally I'm always aware of and that I feel like most of my students are too. Right. It's a little easier whenever you can write something that does not happen right here, right now. <laughs> because then right. you can kind of do How you dare you appropriate clean on culture? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well and you know, we had we had heard this, you know, these people kind of having this argument. It was like online and, and they were like well, I mean, so basically if you're white and straight, like you can only, if you only write white straight characters, then you're racist and homophobic. But if you write someone else, you're appropriating. And, and the, there were a couple of people responded, well, we just don't need to hear from any more white straight authors. They shouldn't even be writing. And it's like, I'm, 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 I'm going to stop you right there. <laughs> That's not really the answer. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's, yeah. it's a hot button topic. It is. Sorry, <laughs> I'm genuinely curious about people who have been, you know, no, writing it, longer and have more education is, than me and more experience because I is something that genuinely stumps me. I know it's tough, and it's like you know, in my novel, I have some Hispanic characters in there, at least some half. Yeah, but Hispanic. you're covered there. But but am I? You know. It's, <laughs> I'm always nervous about that, Of course, that, right? you know, are, are they necessarily Colombian? And, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's And I'm, I'm just genuinely stumped. And I also want to know because, like, I want to do right. You know, I don't want right. to feel stifled. Yeah. Most people do. Right, yeah. I think most people have really good intentions right. as far as I can. And there are quite a few um, authors of color that are trying to um, teach like what is appropriate and what isn't right. as far as it goes in that I've been, um, even for skin tones, like how to describe skin tones. I, in my first in ambassadora, I did the, um, food thing and that is very, that's on PC now for sure. And so I've been trying to look to see, you know, other ways. And there have also been quite a few that are like, you don't need to describe any of the characters. They can just be the characters and then people can think of them how they want to think of them. And I thought, well, that's interesting, but then I'm not sure about the whole idea of us trying to not describe a character on purpose. So it does, it gets a little. I like a little bit of guidance on who I'm picturing, you know, I mean. But you can't have more diverse stories, characters, if you don't let people know they're diverse. Because then every white person is going to think they're all white. You know, it's That's not really, true. Yeah. yeah then but, it'll be everybody's own bias informing their mental yeah. image, right? It's a good psychological test. So. What, what race did you oh, think? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky, tricky hurdle. There are sensitivity readers out there, and there are. I have found a few books that are covering, like, uh, there's a book, like, how, I may be mis- wrong about the title exactly, but. It's how to write black characters. It's part of a series. Um, and they have other. Yeah, uh, these could be really good resources for any aspiring writers out there. Yeah, yeah. I think most of the time it comes down to the the writers not maybe doing their research. And uh, I came across across something on Reddit today, and it was somebody complaining about um, werewolf novels where during transformation their knees break and go backwards, and, and she's like, "It's not their knees; it's their ankle." But it's that, you know, the whole thing where <laughs> you're going to write a werewolf book and not do your basic anatomy. And I think that's the case for a lot of it, though. I mean, um, you know, I think they could be written respectfully if the writer approaches the culture respectfully. Right. And that's just, you know, it's one of those because my most my last book was uh, set in Mexico. And, you know, I had done we, we'd been to the area many times we studied the language we studied you know so because we were going to go to grad school <clears throat> we're going to grad school <laughs> oh it's wow just a boy- so i think that's the thing is that you know we're so used to being fed caricatures that some writers take the easy way out and write the caricature rather than doing a deep dive into the research and and you know learning what makes a person a person rather than just a collection of clothing and language 
quirks and whatnot. So right, at least that's, that's what I always tell my students anyways, just, you know, do the research. So research and, and write real people that focus on making a real character. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's a good rule. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. you know. and I was right? going to say the same thing. You know, you should really do that all the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so you did mention a little bit of offhand comment about your anthology, charity anthology coming out. Um, yes. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I have a short story in it. Yeah. We're a little bit self-serving here. Please tell everyone. We have about mentioned it this, multiple times on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> about this anthology book that has to be fantastic because it's got my husband's short story in it. So we know it's got to be a good quality. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Yes, like sunshine after rain. And I originally was not going to call it that, uh, but then the cover artist, Bradley Sharp, who is the cover artist that I brought in to do the entire Dog Star books imprint, that they still do all of the books based on Bradley's designs. Um, he, when I saw the cover art, I immediately started like looking for something that would go with the cover art. And of course, Shakespeare said it best, like sunshine after rain. And it was like, yes, that's the name of the anthology. That's what we're going to call it now. And it was definitely a project of love because I am not getting any proceeds from it. My publisher's not getting any proceeds from it. The only person that's getting proceeds is going to be the uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society because I had someone very close to me that right in the middle of the pandemic was diagnosed uh, with stage four leukemia. Oh. And oh, I, I, my whole world just, it was already so bizarre and surreal because of the pan- pandemic. And then it just kind of stopped. And I, in order to keep going and not just spiral into some type of a, an existential zone, I said, I need to do whatever I can do. And the only thing that I know how to do is write. And I thought, well, I'm going to see if other writers would be willing to send something to me to put in this anthology because I had already talked to John and Jen at RDSP and they were like, yes, absolutely, we'll do it. And I was just overwhelmed. Not only that, but they bought the cover (laughs) for it um, because Bradley was going to donate it. And they're like, no, no, that's okay. We're going to have it as just one of our regular covers. And I was overwhelmed by the response just, I'm still overwhelmed by the response. Uh, 85 authors ended up contributing to this and it has been no small feat. I've had three people helping me copy edit and I have one that's going to help me like go over the last bit before the formatting and so forth. And it has, it's been humbling and joyful and just absolutely wonderful in so many ways. Well, we, we are only doing limited editions. So I actually think all the limited edition hardcovers, oh, maybe two, there might be two of those left because they were lettered. So there are 26 of them. And I think two of them might be left. Whenever I last spoke to John, we have like a Friday meeting all the time. Um, And then there's also 300 limited edition paperbacks that'll be coming out and then that's it. So once they are gone, they are gone. And there's going to be a launch a two-day launch, July 24th and 25th. We've been doing some pre-recording sessions. And just as a bit of a teaser, uh, Mark's pile may have also been involved with voicing one of the characters in a play that one of my writer friends had sent in. And that turned out so much fun. That session was absolutely great. It was wonderful. Uh, But we're going to, at the launch, we're going to have... uh, a bunch of uh, sponsorship booths. It's an all-access con, which is the media arm of um, Raw Dog Screaming Press. And we're going to have raffles, and uh, we're going to hopefully have somebody from LLS that's going to be able to be there to talk with us. Um, and uh, I just I just feel like this was something that I needed to do at the time, and it was the only thing that kept me going. That in writing the books that Jason and I have been writing together, working on those and hiking that, that was basically, that was our, all our lives. That was it for, yeah. for so long of a period of time. But thanks for asking about that because it's very dear to my heart, obviously. I'm, I'm just thinking about Mark's doing 
you know, a reading and, and reading for this play. And, you know, he and I've been together over 20 years. If you had known him when we first met, there's no way he would have been able to speak in public. Oh, <laughs> Let's do those readings. So. Oh, and now he's, like, now he's like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, no rehearsals. I'll step in and do a play. No problem. <laughs> yes. And we have to... Let everyone know it was video as well as audio. So, like, you actually see his face doing that. Oh, you didn't tell me that. pandemic face. Yes, pandemic hair. (laughs) Which is now, his hair's grown and mine got shorter. Like, I cut mine and he's grown his. We literally have almost the same length hair. Yeah. (laughs) Mine used to be down past my waist. I'm going, I think the pandemic mullet's coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Bringing the seventies back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's not. I still look like Magnum. Yeah. I like it though. It, it's not so much a, a mullet. Like I think MacGyver mullet. This is more like Hutch <laughs> from Starsky and Hutch, but just a little bit longer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> a little curlier, a little longer, a lot darker, but you know, basically that. <laughs> so in the anthology, uh, Jason, did, do you have something in there? Or did you contribute some content? Thanks. I submitted um, part of my speech that I had given at Penn Writers in 2019, and it was a uh, play on Taylor Molly's What Teachers Make. So uh, kind of a little writing pep talk that I kind of liked. I was proud of that. So there's some haiku, some other things in there. So He got a standing ovation for that speech. Yeah, even from all the editors. Yeah, and I can say that was the last standing ovation ever at a Penn Writers. Well, congratulations. I can't wait to read it. Thank you very much. Awesome. Yeah, it was, it's a good one. It's, it's nice. And I was glad it got to get out to a bigger audience. So, And Heidi, did you, are you just, not just, because I know it's a huge overtake, <laughs> it, but did you contribute any content to it also? Is there a story or anything? You know, I did. Um, because I had told everyone, as you remember, Mark, that uh, it was only two rules not more than 1,500 words and had to be upbeat, which I about got strangled for both of those. Everybody was like, ah. <laughs> but they, it was wonderful because people started experimenting and they started doing all of these things that they, outside of their comfort zone, outside of their genre, and like personal pieces and so forth. So it ended up being wonderful. And I had a story, but I felt after I had had it in the main um, body of the manuscript with everyone else's. I felt that it didn't fit anymore. Um, so I took it out and I have this cute little poem called Einstein's Friend. It's very short, but I have always enjoyed the poem and I read it um, during the um, Pittsburgh, I can't remember, the Arts Festival. And they had a poetry thing and a bunch of kids from CMU were there and everything else. And they really loved it. So I was like, okay. I got something here. And I had actually published it in one of our newsletters, our small space, big life um, newsletters, but that was the only other place that had been published. So I put that in there. It was just my own, my own little thing. So Awesome. So you also mentioned you've been doing some co-writing together. I don't know how much yeah. you can talk about that. Um, we would like to hear about spouses <laughs> co-writing together. So if you can't talk about the project much, at least can you talk a little bit about, you know, things you've learned writing together and and what could you tell us that can help us not only keep writing together but stay married (laughs) well we learned a long 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 time ago reading each other's work that if you weren't going to be honest it wasn't going to work and there were a lot of sad conversations and a lot of anger conversations but we did eventually decide that you know if we weren't going to be honest it it wasn't going to matter because our rule was i will never let you put something out there that you will be embarrassed by so that's, that's good because you're covering each other's backs, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're lucky. I mean, you know, when, when we hike, we just, or when we're on a drive or when we're on a plane, we just spitball ideas. And I think we have been doing that for at least probably since we went to Europe. I remember talking on the train and going to Prague talking about those story things, but um, kind of as, as jokes sometimes. Like we, <laughs> two years ago, came up with this kind of romance series where the main uh, protagonist, her name was Summer, 
and she was going to be a Magnum PI type of detective on the East Coast. And each title was going to be like superficially related to summer, like summer's eve or summer's end. And we had characters and we had, you know, so it's always fun to do that. Sometimes those little nuggets become something that we know that we have to jump on. And that's kind of one of the things that we're working on now is uh, a thriller set in the 80s behind the Iron Curtain. So kind of the uh, X-Files meets Fringe. meets the Goonies <laughs> meets, you know. But yeah, it's just, and it's fun. So that's the thing is talking about it's fun and coming up with jokes is fun. So it's being together like this, um, it's an ongoing process where, you know, she can wake up in the middle of the night and say that we need to change this. And I'm like, okay, and then go back to bed. So that's kind of lucky. Yeah. We do voice notes while we're hiking, especially. I can just have it on and we can just talk. And then we'll listen to the voice notes together later. And sometimes we'll be like, well, whose stupid idea was yeah. that? That was just done. <laughs> was like I want to read the summer. Instead of rest of development when he was like, nope, nothing wrong with that. But yeah. nope, can't use that. So. I want to read the summer mystery books now. That sounds awesome. Everybody keeps saying that, and we're like, well, maybe we will have to eventually do that. But we're also working on a middle grade series because my brother and his wife had their first and probably only child just two years ago. And this was the first baby because we're all in our 40s. So this is the first baby in the family ever. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I need to do something to almost like memorialize this in some way. And again, the only thing I could do was write. It's actually a middle grade series, so I'll technically. Yes, exactly. That's what I figured. But yeah, and it's science fiction, and it's super humorous, real fun, adventurous. We just, we had a lot of fun. It's with the it. magicians with science instead of magic. <gasps> yes, and a lot less gore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that sounds great. That's a wonderful idea, and congratulations on the, the baby in the family. Thank you. Yes. Oh my gosh. He is adorable. That's for sure. And we already have, we have two books of that written already. And we have the third one outlined. And with Meta, we have basically one and a half books. That's the adult thriller series. Um, but yeah, right now the industry is just kind of slow. So we're just like, well, we're just going to keep writing on this until we have something big to give to the agent and be like, okay, look, we have all of this. It's be like pretty woman. We're like, I have all of this. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and as we talked about, you know, you've been trying to stay busy with the pandemic and everything. I, I read that you did an online presentation. You both did an online presentation called staying creative, staying productive for all access con. Uh, yeah. So, so I was wondering, maybe you just want to share a tip to the audience sure. on how they can stay productive during this crazy year. And when things happen. get back to normal, too. And when Whatever that's going to be. Yeah. Yes, exactly. No, only during pandemics. Yeah. Well, I actually had to, I wrote an article on this for the Pen Writer, which is um, the Pen Writers Organization newsletter. And it was interesting because I wrote the article. Uh, probably about nine months after we had actually done the presentation and it all kind of still, it, it is, it still sticks. It's still kind of the, the same things that I feel like you need to do. And one of the big ones for me was don't set up goals for yourself that is going to make you feel like a failure. Like I, one of the things I don't like is whenever you hear a writer say you have to write every day. That is just setting yourself up for enormous failure because you miss one day and you feel like it's all done. It doesn't matter how many days you happen to write. Instead, just make it purposeful writing. You know, do it at a time when you feel you can. And I also, in the article, and we had said during the thing, if you can't write right now, don't worry about it. It's okay. You will come back to it. There are so many other things that are happening. But we always like to set up uh, routines. Well, like we said, balancing it too. I mean, sitting at the computer for a long period of time, I have chronic pain in my neck and shoulders that leads to massive migraines. So I have to make sure I can only be in the computer so long at a time, which means, okay, I'm doing yoga two or three times a day. Usually I just keep the mat out. The cats love that. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah, that's good for scratching. Oh yes, absolutely. And then like we do our hiking and so on and so forth. But we also had to have downtime. Like we had to be like, okay, guess what? Every day is the same. 
but it really isn't. You have to still have a weekend. You have to have like days where you don't touch the computer, where you're just away from all of that. And it's okay to think about the books, but you have to learn to take a break because I would have completely burned myself out. We've done that before. Oh my gosh. When we first started writing for years, we would, we just went straight and both of us almost like, huh, it's surprising we haven't burned out yet. Oh my God. Then we did. We just, we just burned out completely. We're not machines, so no. you know you gotta you gotta keep that in, in mind. And you gotta take breaks yeah. to get creative, creative influences and stuff to watch or yeah. read and do something. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, do a lot of binging too. And we have no qualms about that because we there's some series that we've started. Oh, well, we're watching the magicians all the way through again. So. <laughs> Well, I know people talk about guilty pleasures and like, I have none. And they're like, oh, come on. No, because I refuse to feel guilty about my pleasures. <laughs> I have, I don't have a right. single guilty yeah. one. <laughs> I have a lot yeah. of pleasures. <laughs> none guilty. That's right. All right. Well, it's been great chatting with you both, my creative parents. Yes. <laughs> well, thanks for having us. Yeah, this was fun. I'm so glad that we get to do this. So am I their creative daughter-in-law? Sure, yeah. <laughs> it means your daughter-in-law here. This is the first time meeting my par- creative parents-in-law. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, where can our audience uh, find you and your work online? We are easy. Everything is our names. Jason Jack Miller and Heidi Ruby Miller. And then we do, you can find our newsletter, Small Space Big Life, on both of our um, sites as well. But yeah, we made sure we get our names in everything that we possibly can (laughs) ahead of time. So it makes it real easy. Hello there. This is Jay Thorne, author of The Three Story Method, and you are listening to Genretainment. Well, big thanks to my creative parents for being on the show. Yes. Heidi will also be writing a short story set in her Ambassadoria world in our upcoming Dragon Anthology. More on that project soon. Yes, more on that very soon. And we've been very busy in the last few weeks on mm-hmm. multiple writing projects, oh, and yeah. we can't wait to share those with you. So listen in the future for more about information about that. Don't forget to check out awesome. the show notes Yes, for links that we have mentioned in this interview. And before we go, we want to give a shout out to the full band duo, McCarty. McCarty! Create our new theme music for John Entertainment. You can find links to their YouTube channel in the show notes. Well, that's it for today's genretainment. Until, Until next, next time. time. Monkey.